Please stand for the word of God. Today we're going to be reading on uh, page 490 in the Blue Bibles on the backs of each of the chairs. And if you don't have one, uh, a Bible at home, please feel free to take one of these with you. Mark 4, 21 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke to the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we pray that this morning as we consider these things that you said so many years ago, Lord, that, that we would see the absolute relevance of these things today, Lord, that we would see that your kingdom is is uh, sometimes undetected, but absolutely undeterred, that it is unstoppable in its power, Lord, in, it, in its progression. And we thank you for the global element of your kingdom, Lord, that we are not destined for failure, Lord, but we are destined for conquest, for victory. Um, we thank you because, not because of our own means or our own power, but because you, Lord, have already triumphed at the cross, Lord. And we thank you for this. So we, we, we pray that we would see the kingdom uh, bigger than we ever have, Lord, that we would see it more, uh, uh, God, all-consuming than we ever have before. We pray that you would just open our mind to understand the word today. Lord, I, I ask for a special assistance for myself, Lord, in knowing how frail and feeble I am at, at even understanding these things, let alone communicating them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just give me a special uh, God, just impartation of your spirit to be able to, to speak these things clearly to your people and that they would benefit from them because of that impartation, Lord. So I thank you for this and just ask you to bless our time together as we sit underneath the, the blessing of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. 
Um, so, uh, for those of you who were here last week, uh, Pastor David uh, preached an incredible message uh, that, that covered the beginning of Mark chapter 4. It was Mark 4, 1 through about verse 20. And in that, we see Jesus telling the, the people that are listening, his disciples and others, the parable of the soils. And after he, he tells the parable of the, of the, the four different soils, he gives, uh, uh, he explains the mean, uh, the, the, the reason he uses parables. He, he gives a distinct, uh, meaning with a reference from Isaiah. Then after that, he actually, which is very rare in the scripture, he actually interprets the meaning of the passage for us. Um, now, and, and the meaning was this, that the word of God falls on four different kinds of hearts. He, he compares them to soil, and it produces four different results. Uh, and, and then Jesus, after he, he explains that, he proceeds to give them in the remainder, or, or most of the remainder of chapter 4, three more parables of the kingdom of God, which we're going to discuss today. Now, if you weren't here last week, a parable in the most simple definition is a simple story or an analogy of a, 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 that teaches a big truth about God's kingdom, about about the, the spiritual things that are deep. It takes a, a very simple analogy to help us to understand those things. And Jesus would often in the Gospels begin his parables before he launched into one, he would do this. He would say, basically saying the, the, the kingdom is too big for your minds to understand. So he would say this, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? In other words, he's saying, look, I want to explain this to you. What's the, what's the best way for you to get a grip on what I'm trying to teach you? The, the kingdom of God that Jesus, now remember, in relation to the kingdom, which has been the total subject of the book of Mark so far, in, in relation to the kingdom, Jesus is who? Well, he's the king, right? And, and so when he talks about the kingdom, he's speaking with authority because he's the king of that kingdom. And the kingdom of God that Jesus had ushered in is so different from both what the people expected when Messiah would show up, and it was so different than what they had been experiencing in Old Covenant Judaism that Jesus was gracious to give us these explanations. He used these analogies to help his disciples grasp the realities of the kingdom. And dare I say that without such things, we never would understand because we don't do a great job of understanding with these analogies sometimes, right? And so with, with them, it's helpful. He didn't want the people that were listening to him to miss or confuse the arrival of the kingdom of God with anything else, anything lesser. And so he made, he gave us these analogies, these parables. And yet the simplicity of Jesus' method, Pastor Dave talked about this last week, the, the simplicity of Jesus' method did not unlock the secrets of the kingdom for everyone. It wasn't when Jesus explained these things or gave the parable that everyone said, oh, okay, now I get it. Four different soils, four different hearts. Okay, got it, Jesus. Move on with the next thing. No, Jesus makes it clear that those outside of God's election would hear the same parable. They would see the same things, 
But just exactly like the true disciples would hear and see. They'd see and hear the same things, but they would be unable to perceive the truth behind the parable or to apply these truths. This is what he said in last week's text in Mark 4.11. He said, and he said to them, to you, talking to his disciples, has been given the secret, secret's an important word, of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that, and he quotes Isaiah here, they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus is, is actually saying that for those who persist in unbelief, the kingdom and the mysteries of the kingdom are absolutely blocked. And so, if we have... Any hope, please don't forget this. Whenever you listen to a podcast, whenever you read a a Christian article, whenever you are sitting here in church listening to sermons, never forget this. If you have any hope of understanding the teaching of Christ and any of the things of God, it is absolutely prerequisite that that kind of knowledge be given to you. You will not attain it by your academic pursuit, by your, by, and we're all for diligent study, but diligent study must be accompanied by the empowering of the Spirit of God or you'll never understand a single thing in the Word of God. It's not anything that we can, uh, can acquire on our own. God must make us understand what He said. And Mark 4, for example, is not the only collection of kingdom parables in the scriptures. A more complete list is found in Matthew 13. You should read that when you have time this week. Luke 15 also gives a collection of parables. And it's generally understood. Mark doesn't focus a lot on parables. It's generally understood that there's only 11 parables or comparative parabolic analogies in Mark's gospel. And of those... Four of them, more than a third, are given right here in Mark 4. So this is important. Jesus is pausing the narrative to say, I want you to understand these concepts of the kingdom of God. So after beginning with the parable of the soils in great detail, and also having revealed the purpose behind his use of parables, as well as interpreting that particular parable for his disciples, Jesus gives the second parabolic analogy of the kingdom of God. And he begins it with a rhetorical question. And it goes like this. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? So the image is someone lights a lamp, they immediately shove it under the bed, put it under a basket. And and this question that Jesus asks is rhetorical because the question is obviously absurd. A lamp is lit for one purpose, to illuminate. So if you put it under a basket or shoved it under the bed, it would defeat the purpose of lighting the lamp in the first place. There's no reason to light a lamp that you're going to hide under something. I mean, that's pretty simple, right? In the first century, uh, people used simple oil lamps after dark to light their homes. And in order for these to be affected, two things needed to be true of the light. It needed to be elevated put on a stand, and it needed to be centrally located so that it would shed its light in a larger area. Over the centuries, this passage that Jesus made, this statement Jesus makes that no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket or under a bed, has been interpreted in two main ways. Some 
see the light or the lamp in this case in connection with the good soil that was mentioned in Christ's previous parable. For example, he said that good soil produces 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And, and what he's saying, some people believe, in this, this issue of, of light, of, the, of a lamp, is that a redeemed life will produce the light of righteousness that cannot be hidden but is seen by all for what it is. And this means that the change that is wrought in individual believers by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the inner work, uh, that that will be manifest to everyone. Therefore, a person's faith can't be constrained to the private sectors of the heart. What I mean by that, when I was growing up, this seemed like more common now. People are... Uh, a little bit more vocal for political reasons. But politicians would always, when they were asked about their faith, they always say, well, that's a personal thing. You know, my faith is very personal to me. Well, what the, what, if, we, if we understand this scripture in that way, your faith cannot be a personal thing. You can't tuck it away in the private sectors of your heart where it doesn't affect anything. That, that, that kind of faith is meaningless. It has to shine forth to bring sinners to Christ and eternal glory to God. We see this this principle reiterated in in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16, in the same way Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, while this is a true and acceptable meaning behind this verse, I actually think that there's another interpretation of this passage that is better given Jesus' context of the kingdom of God. R.C. Sproul points out that the original Greek in this passage includes a definite article, meaning that a better reading of this is uh, of this verse is not um, does anyone light a lamp and uh, you know and place it under a basket or under a, under a bed? It should read instead of a lamp, it should read the lamp. Now, when we when we make that article specific, that definite article. The lamp as opposed to a lamp, what do you think the lamp is pointing to? What? Jesus. Does anyone light the lamp and put it under a bushel? Does anyone light the lamp and place it under a bed? See, that simple change makes the elevated, central focus of this passage, Jesus. In John 8... Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. And I believe that he is saying that as the king of the kingdom, he ca- what he came to accomplish cannot be hidden away for long. The following two parables that we'll talk about in a moment make that clear. But remember in Psalm 119, 105, you guys are all familiar with this verse, I would, I would, I would uh, uh, venture to guess. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. Now, obviously when we read that, most of us immediately think, and rightfully so, of the written word of God, the, the, the scriptures that the have been given to us. But remember that John, in his Gospels, introduces Jesus to us as the word. And think about that in, in relation to, to Psalm 119.105. Jesus is a lamp to my feet. Jesus is a light to my path because he is the word. He tells us that Jesus was the word that in the beginning was with God and that was God. 
So if Jesus is the lamp in the context of this verse, or the light, what does Jesus do? What makes him the lamp? What makes him the light? Well, what does a lamp do? What does light do? Light guides. Light exposes. Jesus has appeared to reveal the Father, to guide humanity, fallen humanity, to the Father. He has come to, to reveal Him, to shine the light on God and, and, and God's desire to save a people for Himself. But more than that, everything secret and mysterious about His kingdom is made manifest to us in Christ. When we want to know what God is like, when we want to know what the kingdom is like, all we have to do is look at Christ the light. And as the king of his kingdom, Jesus is the perfect ideal of the kingdom. In him, and in him perfectly, we see the love of God, we see the holiness of God. And because of this, for the second time in this chapter, Jesus utters this phrase, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now there's kind of a mixed metaphor going on here. We have the light that you see, and then Jesus refers to our hearing. And what is Jesus saying by inserting right in the middle of this parable, this statement, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying that serious attention must be given to what is being revealed in the light. I have a lamp in my living room. It has a dimmer on it. And usually because I'm a clumsy fool, I usually, I, I usually turn it to the lowest setting before I go to bed. Because how foolish would it be? Because I do that because I'm going to ram my toe into something if I have to get up in the middle of the night and I don't have that light on. How foolish would it be for me to turn on that lamp at night and then need to get a drink of water in the middle of the night and get up like this and just walk through the house? How stupid would that be? And so Jesus is saying, the light is shining. Pay attention. Pay attention. Don't. Don't cover your spiritual sensory receptors. Pay attention. This is important. Serious attention has to be given. It has to be given to what's being revealed, but it also has to be given to what it, what the power it has to expose what is hidden. See, we began this series several months ago, a few months ago, by encouraging you, the people of Northridge, to engage with Mark's text on your own. You do not need alone for me to come and try to give you some thoughts on Mark. We want you to engage with the story of Jesus and, and learn it and grow by it. We wanted you to meditate on these words for that very purpose, to, to let your ears hear and, and to pay attention. And we wanted the light from this word, the, the, the word is Jesus, to guide you towards what is good and expose whatever is evil. And Jesus, this is why we asked you to do that, because Jesus in this passage actually gives a promise to those who would deeply cherish his teaching. But he also gives a warning to those who would casually disregard his proclamation of the truth. Listen to what he says. Verse 24, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, 
Even what he has will be taken away. So Jesus' promise is this. If you hear well, and how do you hear well? You hear obediently. You hear submissively. If you hear well, more knowledge of God will be added to you. The more you say yes to the things Jesus shows you in his word, the more of himself he will show you. Is that not a wonderful promise? So in light of Pastor Dave's message, it's a great time for us to really analyze the condition of the soil of our heart. Is it hard? Is it when the word of God falls on it? Does the enemy come right in and just snatch away whatever was dropped on it? Is it rocky? Giving you absolutely no root, the most shallow common denominator form of Christianity? Is it thorny? Does it get choked by the cares of this world easily? Jesus is saying, pay attention. Listen to what you're hearing. Stop, slow down, meditate. See, if those three conditions describe the condition of your heart, beware. Because Jesus is saying in his warning that your empty religion, your pious persona, and your self-righteousness, even those things will be taken away when the light reaches its full strength. The writer of Hebrews recognized this. He said, a no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Someday there will be a hearing, there'll be a, 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 a you know, a, a accounting for all that you have heard, all that you have heard and, and ignored and passed over and, and uh, especially as it relates to the gospel. If you said, uh, you know, like the, like, uh, I think it was King Festus in, in, um, um, the book of Acts. He said, I'm waiting for a more convenient time. You'll give an account for that. Now, when I was younger, it used to bother me a lot that Jesus said, the one that has very little, what he has will be taken away. And it may seem unfair to you as well that those who have little faith, and little knowledge wouldn't be supplied by some heavenly welfare program. But the Bible says that those who are diligent will be added to, and those who are spiritually impoverished will be left destitute. And this is a theme throughout all of Scripture, especially from the lips of Christ. Do you remember the parable of the talents? The ones who built on what they had been given were commended and they were rewarded while the servant who buried what he'd been given was called wicked and slothful. And the one talent he had was taken from him and given to the one who'd been most faithful. In the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, it was the wise virgins whose lamps were trimmed and burning. They all had lamps, but they weren't ready. They weren't filled with oil. They weren't, they weren't burning. It was the ones who did have their lamps trimmed and burning, awaiting their master's return, who were, who were welcomed into his presence while the others were cast away. So in the next parable, 
Jesus illustrates something amazing about the kingdom of God. He illustrates the undeterred progress and success of the message of the kingdom. Returning to the theme of a man scattering seed, all of these these, uh, parables are agricultural in nature, just like the first parable. He notes that the sower has no anxiety about the success of what was sown. Let's read that part again, beginning in verse 27. It says, he sleep, this is the man who has sown seed now, says he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Now, who is the sower, the Bible tells us? Jesus. It says, uh, Pastor Dave taught that last week, that, that, that God is the one who is sowing the seed of the word and it, and it grows as he, as he appoints. And here, there's a, there's another reflection. Definitely the, 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 uh, God is directly sowing his word, but indirectly it's, it's his people who sow the word and preach it and proclaim it. And after scattering the seed in this analogy, the, the one who sows the seed leaves it to do its work. Now think about that. That seems some of Jesus' uh, parables are so incredibly simple that they're incredibly profound. He says that he just leaves it. He, can you imagine a farmer? We have a lot of farmers in this area. Can you imagine a farmer who would sow his cotton and then three days later go dig it up just to make sure it's doing what it was supposed to do? Can you imagine that? Of course you can't. What kind of crop could that man have any hope to have if every time he got a little worried about it, he dug it up to make sure it was doing what he did? Well, he'd destroy his crop. He doesn't dig it up every few days to make sure it's taking root. He sleeps. He rests. He trusts. And then he rises and he goes about his business while the seed, completely unseen under the soil, germinates, slowly putting down roots, forming a plant, which will eventually push its way through the good soil. Now, the Greek word for by itself, I'm going to teach you all some Greek this morning, and, and, uh, and you can brag to all of your friends who do Bible studies that you know some Greek. The, the Greek word for by itself in reference to the work of the earth is automotos. And guess what that word means? Automatically. That's a, that's a simple one for you to remember. The idea is that once the seed is sown... The seed and the earth conspire to bring forth a harvest, that something is happening. There's a process that, that begins to take over, and the seed does what the seed's supposed to do. But in reflecting on this, Matthew Poole, who was a, a, a biblical commentator from the 18th century, he said this, and this is good, did the earth really produce by itself? He said, the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, yet not without the influence of heaven, both in the shining of the sun and the falling of the dew and the rain. So Jesus is saying that though the seed grows without human intervention or human influence, it is surely the growth of the seed, which is the word of God, is surely a work of God, whose sunlight of truth, along with the cleansing rains of the Holy Spirit, ensure a bountiful harvest in the soul. But Jesus doesn't stop there in just talking about how these things happen by the direct activity of heaven. He also describes the growth as gradual. 
And that's when everybody who's paying attention, every, every Christian who, who hears this and is paying attention can go, whew, thank God it's gradual. Because if it weren't gradual, you would be way, way, way far behind, right? Jesus said, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. So, just as a word of, of caution, encouragement, when you see a new believer, and you notice that in their life there are some hang-ups, there's some baggage, you should rejoice, not in the hang-ups and the baggage, but when you see a tiny blade of faith in their lives. Because it points to a future spiritual bounty. Jesus says this is how it works. The progress takes time and and it works. Uh, Matthew Henry said, nature does nothing abruptly. And isn't that true? You know, the, uh, what do they say? I, 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 the, the best time to plant an apple tree was 30 years ago. Remember that? Because nature doesn't do anything fast. Though the growth is progressive and it's slow, the beautiful promise of Jesus, O oh sinner, is that his work will be completed. Raise your hand if you've been a believer for five years. And keep it up, keep it up. Raise your hand if you've been a believer for 10 years. Keep your hand up. Raise your hand if you've been a believer for 25 years. Anybody? Wow, oh, we got some out there. How about 50 years? Any 50-year group here in the... in the? Okay, not many of you. All right. <laughs> we got a few. All right, good deal. Now, let me ask you, all 5, 10, 50, 25-50-year people, are you now perfect having once believed in Christ? Say a hearty amen if you're perfect. Okay, I heard a no, but I didn't hear any amens. No, of course you're not. But see, here's the beauty of this promise of this parable. By God's grace and his faithfulness, you have a guarantee that one day you're going to ripen. You're going to be ready for harvest. Isn't that good news? You'll be harvested for a twofold purpose for our Savior's glory and for His praise. And that glory and that praise of that harvest will continue throughout the eons of eternity. I love this verse. In fact, I use it in my teaching Wednesday night. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you, raise your hand if He's began a good work in you. Well, He's not done. Because the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Someday, that body that gives you so much trouble right now is going to rise and you will be done. You will be finished. Your perfection will be complete and you will live glorifying God for the rest of your existence, which will go on forever. As long as the word is sown in good soil, there will be a harvest. We must trust that the word proclaimed is sufficient to bring sinners to Christ. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need cleverness. We don't need slick production to bring people to Christ. We need to sow the word. We need the gospel to be proclaimed boldly to everyone with clarity and with faith. And when that gospel falls on good soil, you can guarantee that what pops up as a blade will finish as the full grain in the ear. Now, not only is the gospel guaranteed to succeed in individual lives, but it also, Jesus tells us in his last parable, is guaranteed to overcome every wicked system 
every false religious lie, every tyrannical government of this world, this is precisely the meaning of the the final parable of Mark 4. Throughout history, there have been occasions where it seemed like Christianity as a whole was on the ropes. It was about to be extinguished, put out, just put out of history. Certainly that was the case in the Colosseums of Rome, in the flaming stakes of the medieval church, in the gulags of the Soviet Union, there were times where I thought this is, this is the end of Christianity. It would even seem to be the case in places like China and North Korea and Iran today. But see, the success of the kingdom of God is not only guaranteed individually, but globally as well. That is completely different from what some of you have believed about the end of the world. But I'm telling you, the success of God's kingdom is absolutely guaranteed globally. Jesus likened its beginning to a tiny seed. I wish I had one up here, but I uh, did that one time. A, a, a lowly mustard seed. If I, if I had a mustard seed out here and just chucked it on the carpet, just threw it out there, you would be hard-pressed to even find it. It's so tiny. Little bitty seed. But when it's planted, that tiny little seed becomes a giant leafy bush, usually about as tall, about 12 feet, about 3 feet in diameter. When the church began in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, it seemed barely noticeable to the world. I mean, it made quite an uproar in Jerusalem, but the rest of the world, no notice, no care. But see, a small band of committed disciples kept sowing the word. And some of it fell on rocky soil, and some of it fell on thorny ground. Some of it fell on hard ground, and the enemy came and immediately took it away. But by the grace, providence, and election of God, some of that seed fell on good soil. And it began to take root And it began to grow. And in one generation, without having the benefit of a printing press, radio, TV, or even the internet, the gospel had spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And their message, the message of this gospel, was not just another religion. Because the message was historical in nature. It wasn't just philosophical. It concerned a real man who had actually died and who had actually risen from the dead. Complete with, as Paul says, more than 500 eyewitnesses. That man's messengers were willing to go to their graves proclaiming the reality that his death and his resurrection meant forgiveness and, uh, uh, for the world and reconciliation to God. And no tyrant, as hard as they tried, has ever been able to extinguish this message. Even today in places like China, North Korea, Iran, where the gospel is absolutely illegal. It can mean the death penalty if you are to proclaim the gospel. 
Thousands, literally thousands, are coming to Christ every single day. It used to be just the assumption that North America, the United States in particular, was the center of global Christianity in the world. Did you know that that hasn't been the truth for for decades now? The The center of global Christianity in the world is China. China is exploding with the gospel, and we should we should rejoice in that and pray that it returns here to the, to our nation. And this great success of the gospel was not just by accident. It was actually prophesied in the book of Daniel. If you ever want to know the theme of the book of Daniel, this is it in a nutshell. The theme of the book of Daniel is that God is sovereign over the nations. Think about this. Daniel starts out the book. He's been taken captive from Jerusalem. The temple's destroyed. He gets taken to Babylon. He, uh, the king tells him, you got to eat all my food because I want you to look good. He says, no way. I'm going to do it God's way. He, and he winds up looking better and being elevated than, uh, than the, the wise king and, 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 uh, of Babylon. Take it and move on from there. You find the story of, of uh, the, this same king building a golden image and telling everybody at the sound of the music to bow to it. And um, he says, anybody who does is going to be cast in a furnace. You know the story. He takes three guys that refuse to bow because they're, they're devoted to Yahweh God, throws them in a furnace. Guess what? They can't burn them up. God is sovereign. It goes on from there, and um, uh, you know this this king says, "Look at everything I've built. I'm the man. You know, everybody be impressed with me." And God turns him into a beast, and uh, basically spends uh, seven years eating grass and and uh, you know growing his hair and nails. God is sovereign over every king. Shall I go on? Um, the, the, you know, then we have the, the when his successor comes in, um, he says, you know, this is this is uh, my kingdom now, and they defile the articles for the temple, and God literally brings his hand into their banquet and writes on the wall in in paraphrase, "You're done." And and, um, and that that very night, their kingdom was overthrown, and the Medes and the Persians took over. Uh, it went later on with the Medes and the Persians, um, the 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 fools who were in charge of it, uh, unbeknownst to the king, starts a, a a new law that no one can pray to anybody but but uh, the king. And and so if you pray to God, you're in trouble. Well, of course Daniel's going to pray to God, so they throw him in a lion's den, uh, thinking he'd be consumed. God protects him. God takes authority over the lions and shuts their mouths. God is doing this over and over again in the book of, of Daniel so that a people who are in captivity, who have been taken exile, will know that, that Babylon, uh, the, the, the Medes, the Persians, Greece is not in charge, but God's in charge. So the most wonderful story, I think, to illustrate this point, in Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon sees a vision of a giant statue of a man. This is how he described it in Daniel 2.32. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now this image represented Nebuchadnezzar's empire as well as the, the empires that would soon follow his own, the Persian, the Greek, the Roman empires. But there was also in this vision one final empire to rise. Now notice I said final empire. This is what Daniel said to the king. He said, as you looked, he's interpreting this dream, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. 
And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff, like dust of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And Daniel uh, interprets the meaning of that vision for Nebuchadnezzar. He says, in the days of those kings, the kings of the gold, the silver, etc., in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, a great God has made known to you, made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. See, Daniel's mountain teaches the same thing as Jesus' mustard bush. See, the kingdom begins in the eyes of those observing as something small, something tiny, something unexpected, and therefore undeterred and undetected. But it becomes great. When Jesus says, the birds nest in the shade of the bush, he's speaking about how the kingdom benefits all mankind, bringing peace and stability to culture. See, Nebuchadnezzar saw it as a rock cut out from a mountain by no human intervention, no human ingenuity, and yet that rock was Christ and his kingdom. It became a mountain that filled the earth after decimating all other powers. My question for you this morning is, as Jesus encouraged us earlier, are you hearing well Do you understand that the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is sufficient to produce a a crop that is pleasing to God in you as you hear it? That the word of the gospel itself, when sown on good ground, is enough to produce a crop? Do you believe that the gospel proclaimed is enough to persuade your friends and your family to believe? Do you believe that success of God's kingdom is inevitable because he has already decreed its victory? It's easy to affirm those things with our lips. Say, ah, yeah, sure, I believe those things. But have those realities produced convictions to be lived out in our lives? Have those realities shaped what we pursue and what we desire and what we cling to? Have they made us confident in the face of a hostile culture and a hostile political environment. That Jesus, they're confident that Jesus is the king, not will be the king that is the king. And he must reign, 1 Corinthians tells us, until he puts all his enemies under his feet. May God help us to believe that we will conquer by the truth in his name. And we cannot be deterred, 
even if sometimes we are not detected. Amen? Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your triumph, your victory. We thank you that, that God, there is nothing that can stop your word. That where it is sown on good soil, it will bring a harvest. It will bring, uh, God, the, the produce of a, of a godly life. God, we thank you that your kingdom is global and it's all-consuming. That there are places on our, on our planet, Lord, that were once consumed in darkness that are being overtaken by the light, Lord God. Lord, we pray that we would, as you encouraged us to set the lamp on its stand, elevate it, elevate the lamp, elevate the, the light, put it centrally, Lord, so it casts its light all around us, Lord. We pray that we would hear what you would have to say for us, Lord, and we wouldn't be victims of our own doubt, our own fear, Lord, but we would trust that you are, God, working in us to bring forth first what might just seem like a tiny blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, Lord. We pray that we would trust your work. And collectively, Lord, we thank you that we are not barely hanging on in a losing enterprise, Lord. But God, that we belong to you and we are under the guarantee of your success. That someday this rock that has struck all the kingdoms of the world will grow and it will become a single mountain that fills the entire earth. And Lord, we pray with faith-filled hearts, hasten that day, God. Bring about the day when your glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. We're about to receive from the Lord's table, um, the Lord's Supper. And every week when I read those familiar words from the book of 1 Corinthians, I conclude with these words, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so the things that I wanted to share with you this morning find their completion in that, that that every time we come together and we share this, this meal together, we are saying, Jesus has won. Amen? We're not saying he will win. We're not saying that, that uh, we're saying that he has won and that, that as the, the seed grows, his, his, his progressive victory is taking over and we believe that. And we're going to continue to do this until that glorious day when he returns and, and takes his place as king over all the earth. And so, as you do that, remember that you are not just doing a church ceremony that you do every week or some uh, that has some mysterious meaning you don't understand. Realize that in doing this, you are proclaiming, along with all of your brothers and sisters who are here this morning, you are proclaiming the victory of Jesus. 
and let your hearts rejoice as you do that. I would remind you that if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are harboring doubts about where you are with Jesus, please just stay in your seat. Uh, we want you to, to, we want this to mean, we believe this is meaningful. Paul points that out in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, even saying that those who drink unworthily, those who take or take unworthily, uh, are drinking, eating and drinking condemnation to themselves. And we do not wish that to you, but we would love the opportunity to share with you um, the gospel of Jesus and, and um, give you the opportunity to respond to that so you can see me or Pastor Dave after service, and we'd love to do that. But for the rest of you, um, sometimes this, this uh, meal takes on an a, uh, unnecessarily somber feel. I mean, we're rejoicing today. Amen? We're rejoicing because Jesus has won. Right? Do you believe that? And so come, to, come receive these elements knowing who is victor this morning. And, and proclaim it in the partaking. We'll take, come get the elements and then we'll, we'll uh, take them together as we, uh, as we, after we get them. So come on down. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Let's give thanks. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that no power on earth can ever stand in your way. That no scheme of any man or tyrant can ever squelch the power of your gospel. And Lord, we pray that in your divine will, Lord God, that you would open channels for the gospel that we haven't seen yet, Lord God, not only around the world, but here in our own cities, in our workplaces, at our schools, Lord. We pray that you would open the doors for your gospel to prevail. God, we pray that as we proclaim it, Lord, that you would you would let it fall on good soil that would produce a harvest 30, 60, and 100 fold. Lord, we pray that you would just be glorified as we look to you, as we turn to you, God, as we acknowledge your victory, your victory over this world, your victory over sin, your victory over death. We pray that you would encourage our hearts to not be weary in well-doing. God, we pray that you would just help us to be faithful and to hear well and turn our attention to you always. We ask all this in Jesus' name. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to read this benediction to you. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, 
but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.